Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be back um, in Madison, to be back at church with y'all. And um, for those of you who have seen, it's been a real joy to see you, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with everyone. So, um, my name is Matthew, if you don't know me, and I'm just here to open God's Word this morning. So if you'd pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and help us to see Jesus. Lord, help us to know Christ in the face of Stephen, or to know his heart, his character, his very person. And Lord, may he be an exemplar and inspiration to us. Lord, give us spiritual wisdom and discernment. Lord, give us courage and grace, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Open our lips, open our mouths, open our tongues, open our ears and our hearts to receive you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to hear and study this swan song of Stephen. He is the first Christian martyr of the church. And a martyr, if you don't know what the word martyr means, a martyr is someone who bears witness to and for Christ and who is persecuted for that witness, sometimes even to the point of death, to the point of shedding one's blood. And a swan song is the last act or speech that someone gives that defines their life, that characterizes their life, that that make memorials of their lives and puts them squarely in the annals of human history. And while the human uh, history that we know of is broadly conceived, may not be thinking of someone such as Stephen, we as the church think of Stephen um, a great deal. He is, again, our first Christian martyr. And one of the beautiful things that I love about Stephen, I've been thinking about this, is that his swan song is not his own. In our culture, we live for authenticity. We, we want to define ourselves. We want to self-actualize and make our mark on the world. But he just basically ripped off a history lesson from the Old Testament, right? And then it got him killed. That's super weird, all right? So he, he's plagiarizing the Bible, And the beautiful thing about Christianity is we get to plagiarize, which is awesome. So don't do that in school. Um, But as Christians, what I'm trying to say is we're most authentic when we live in our own God-designed way to look like Jesus. And so therefore, the shape of our lives, the shape of our words, the shape of our message is going to be very much resembling that of Christ. And this reminded me this morning of one of my favorite poems from my favorite poet, Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, his poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, he says this, just a part of it. He says, and it's, it's a mouthful, so you have to listen. The just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I love that. And friends, this morning we get to gaze into the face of Christ through the features of Stephen's face this morning. So, and as, you, as Gwen read this morning, this passage is like epically long. Um, we have I, we can't even begin to go into all of it. It's so long. We had like trouble fitting it in the bulletin. Um, and so it's, it's actually the longest discourse in the book of Acts. 
And I think in part this is because Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to see that this is a very significant point in the history of the church. It's a hinge point in which the church in Acts 1-8, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And just after Acts chapter 7 is when the church is catalyzed, is pushed into Judea and Samaria and beyond. So this is a really significant watershed moment. And this morning, so because we can't focus on everything, I want us to focus on three particular points. Uh, The first is Stephen's person and message. Stephen's person and message. Secondly, is spiritually discern the religious leaders' hearts. We want to really focus in and try to discern the religious leaders' hearts. And finally, to meditate on how God can use Stephen and his message to inspire and challenge us today. And so before we jump into the contents of Stephen's message, um, which, again, we won't be able to treat in full, I think it's important to draw attention to his person, to his character. Um, I find something really important and really valuable and really remarkable about Stephen. This whole story is so amazing, and yet we we know so little about him, and it seems so pedestrian. All we're told is that he was a man of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. A man of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And this seemingly simple description has me thinking a lot recently about what it would actually mean if we were good people. By God's grace, we were good people. If we ceaselessly abided in the Holy Spirit, if we truly asked for and pursued wisdom, what would that mean? What would that mean for us, for our church, for Madison? And so this is far from a pedestrian and stale request to ask for these things. These realities can be fashioned, maybe even quaint. That's so nice you asked for wisdom. Hmm, right? Wisdom, it seems old-fashioned. But it animates the very person of Stephen. And so I think it's important to know that it's vital to know that Stephen is accomplishing what he is by the power of God, not because he has a Ph.D. or he's a Bible scholar, though it's clear that he knows his Bible very well, right? It's because he was a good man. He had wisdom. He had the Holy Spirit of God. He was possessed by the Spirit. And this is, in fact, what the church asked for in Acts chapter 4, which is really important. If we go back to Acts 4, you'll see the very thing that uh, Stephen is accomplishing here is is an answer to the prayers of the church at that time. And to possess the Spirit, to possess this wisdom, is to see and act in the world. And this is a really important point I want to hammer in the beginning, is to see and act in the world with spiritual attention and clarity and dynamism. To see the world with God's eyes, to be tuned to the world with God's ear, to perceive its harmony, its dissonance, and to discern how to act and speak in any given moment. And I think that's exactly what Stephen does here. And this is exactly what Jesus did all the time. Stephen is doing great wonders and signs, um, just as Jesus did. We learn that Stephen was falsely accused, just as Jesus was, for the very same reasons that Jesus was falsely accused, which is fascinating. So if you look in your Bibles in uh, Acts, or in your bulletins at Acts chapter 6, uh, verse 10 through 15, we can see that he says, beginning in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking, and they secretly instigated Men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they seized him and brought him before the council and set up false witnesses. Exactly what happens to Jesus. 
this man, they say, never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered, and don't miss this, to us. To us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So I hope you hear that. God, temple, law, customs, Moses. But not just those. Our God, our temple, our law, our customs, our Moses. Right? Each of these facets of his accusations make up the sum total of like the essence of Judaism. They're basically saying you're being a really bad Jewish man. You are a blasphemer. So how does he respond? So Stephen stands before the high priest who sits in Moses' seat, the one who is to carry the torch of Moses, so to speak. This, he gives more than just a history lesson. He's drawing, that is to say, Luke is drawing our attention, I think, to a very subtle subtext, an undercurrent in what uh, Stephen is uh, communicating here in his message. It just seems on the surface like he's just recounting the history of Israel. He is, but he's doing more than just that. So he begins with Abraham. It's a very good place to start. Um, and we can't spend a lot of time in Abraham, but what I want to do is garner a few points from Abraham. And the section, this is not in your bulletin, by the way. It's in the very beginning of chapter 7. But he says in verse 2, this is in your bulletin, he says, brothers and fathers, notice. I think this is really important. It's small, it's subtle. But Stephen, despite being accused falsely of all these things, he loves these people. I think he genuinely loves these men. He considers them brothers. He considers them fathers. He respects them and honors their position, even though he thinks they're really misguided. I think it's really important. It's a challenge, I think, for us. Um, and so he chooses uh, to defend himself through a historical overview of God's relationship with Israel. And I think this is important and significant because what God has been doing through Abraham, he's been making promises to Abraham. In verse 5, a, a place, a land, we heard that in Numbers and in other parts, the place of worship, the, cov- uh, the temple, and then, of course, the covenant. And so Stephen is proving his Jewish orthodoxy one accusation at a time. But what he wants to do is frame what God is now doing through Jesus and through his church in that very same historical trajectory. He's doing that now. He's continuing his work, as we learn in the book of Acts. This history of the church is all that Jesus began to do and teach, and now he's continuing to do and teach in faithfulness to Abraham and to the fathers before him. And so God has been partnering with people, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, all the people that we've uh, learned and and read about um, in Acts chapter 7 this morning. And so as we turn, we'll switch to Joseph. He goes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Joseph. And here is where we we really begin to hear the undercurrents of Stephen's sort of subtext, his message. Um, Here, Stephen brings us to Egypt. And you'll notice Joseph was brought to Egypt, he accentuates, through the jealousy of his brothers. Through the jealousy of his brothers. Already there's a spiritual sickness that we can identify here. And Jacob, or Israel, Jacob uh, represents Israel, the people of Israel, went down into Egypt and he died. He and our fathers So Israel will come from that point forward to live in Egypt, as we know, for 400 years. And they would ultimately eventually be enslaved um, by the the Egyptians. But if you know your Bible, you know that Egypt shows up everywhere in the Bible. Egypt becomes a a symbol, in essence, of oppression, 
of slavery. And, but what's amazing is Stephen draws nothing thwarts aggression and slavery that the people of Israel endured, nothing thwarts God's purposes. He says in verse 17 of Acts 7, but as the time of the promise drew near, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, he's saying he's still moving, he's still working, God is on the move to fulfill his promises in the face of this slavery and opposition. And so now finally, let's turn to Moses because here, when Stephen pivots, this is where you'll notice he spends most of his time. But I wanted to give us a little bit of lead up into this point. Here we have the longest section of Stephen's discourse. Because Stephen wants to be very clear. He wants to communicate, Moses is great. He, look in verse 20. He's beautiful in God's sight. Verse 22, he possessed wisdom. Which is interesting. Who else possessed wisdom in this narrative? Stephen. In verse 22, he's mighty in word and deed. Who else was mighty in word and deed? Stephen. Okay. Now, mind you, Luke is also crafting this too. So Stephen isn't like, I'm pretty great. No, he's not doing that. Um, so this is important. He's drawing a connection here, which we're going to see in greater clarity later. But what he's doing here is he's wanting to really hone in on Moses because Moses stands at the center of Judaism. All we know about Adam and Abraham and Joseph and the rest are because Moses has written the book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It was through Moses, we learn, that the, um, the, the, the Torah, the law was given at Mount Sinai, that Moses was the mediator of the first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But my question for you, and I think what Stephen is wanting us to ask is, which Moses? Which Moses? He wants the real Moses to stand up, right? Not the high priest, but the, which Moses? In verse 23, look there. We see that Moses' heart is drawn to his brothers. It's drawn to his brothers. He sees their oppression. He sees their infighting, their quarreling. And he says, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Does that sound interesting? Who's being wronged at this point in history? The church is being wronged. And they're the brethren. The church is made up of converted um, Jewish worshipers to the, to the Messiah, Jesus. And then he asks in verse 27, or sorry, excuse me, uh, who made you ruler and judge over us? The response to Moses is, who made you ruler and judge over us? And this is significant. This is a flat rejection of Moses. And he, I think Stephen puts that in there for a reason. They're saying, we don't want this Moses. We want to be in control. We want a male order Moses to our liking. And so in verse 29, I think this is subtle, Moses, it says, fled and became an exile. Moses fled and became an exile. And this is the heart, I think, of what Stephen's getting at. We can really begin to understand the undercurrent of his message, the dynamics spiritually at work here. Friends, we all know that re religions of all kinds, Christianity included, can get hijacked by their worshipers in the service of themselves. This can happen in small and great ways. It, the, our faith can become polluted, and at worst, religious elites, the people that Stephen was coming face to face with, can, in the pride of their presumption, believe they are chosen ones to the exclusion of all others. We are sons of Abraham. 
And we know John the Baptist, right? God can make sons of Abraham out of these stones. Don't presume that you are a chosen one, that that means you're off the hook. In fact, you're more responsible if you're the chosen of God. But in so doing, in taking their faith and trying to wrangle it and use it for their own self-agenda, and when we do this, they send their own religious leaders, their own religious founders into exile. They no longer are true to them. But in so doing, they exile themselves. Not only from the purity of true religion, they become exiled from the true heart of God, and that's the most important thing, right? Their slavery is more subtle and deep and insidious because it's so deeply spiritual. And we see this at work in Jesus and the gospel, the narrative, right, this dynamic. Jesus speaking with the Jewish uh, people who do not believe in him at this point as the Messiah. And they, they say to him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Which is remarkable because the people of Israel were in fact enslaved in Egypt. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a head scratcher, you know. Um, but Jesus responds, and this is where it gets to the deeper level, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father, you from your father. And they said, Abraham is our father. And that's always the case, right? The appeal to saints of old to justify an agenda, right? The Abrahams and the Josephs and the Moseses are servants in the construction of their temples, mouthpieces of their laws and customs, not the true blue Moses and so forth. And Jesus continues, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And so Stephen, like Moses, like Jesus, like the apostles before him, he truly sees. He has the discerning mind and heart to see. He sees through their religiosity, their idolatry, their self-imposed true heart of their God, from the true heart of Moses, the true religion, the true heart of their God for what he is. And so in a word, they return to Egypt. They go back to Egypt. They enslave themselves. We saw this in Numbers 14. Would it not be better for us to go to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. Even then, Moses wasn't enough. Moses wasn't sufficient to their liking. And if you look in Acts chapter 7, uh, verse 35, um, this Moses, Stephen continues, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke with him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts returned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make gods for us. This Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You can hear Stephen building, building, building. And friends, this morning, Stephen defends himself 
before the very people who sit in Moses' seat, who believe they possess the right interpretation of Moses, who believe they have the right authority of Moses. And Moses, or excuse me, Stephen is saying, you don't have Moses right. You haven't been actually following Moses. You've refused to obey like your fathers have. You've thrust him aside as your fathers did. And just as they made a calf in those days, so too now they are worshiping their own idols. It is always some idolatry that carries us away from the true heart of God and from the true worship of God. And notice, idolatry always blinds us. I think it's Psalm 115. If you read that, it's like there's a spiritual law of idolatry that says you become like you worship. And when you make dumb, mute, deaf idols, you become literally desensitized spiritually from an ability to see and know and understand how God's working. And I want to draw our attention briefly to a passage in 2 Corinthians 3. The Apostle Paul says this, We Christians, we apostles, are, are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom for apostles, for priests, for parishioners, for children, for adults, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Remember, they could not withstand the wisdom that Stephen brought, the Spirit and the wisdom that he was speaking with. They could not see how God was fulfilling his promise and covenant to Abraham and to Moses. And now they couldn't see how he was doing that very same thing through Jesus and through his church. But like Moses in verse 23 and 25 of chapter 7 of Acts, he visits his brothers. Jesus does the same thing. He visits his brothers, the children of Israel, and he supposed that they would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they could not. They did not understand and in the same, they had exiled that first Moses in the service of their idols, and their hearts and their ears were closed. They were veiled in their eyes. And Stephen says they were uncircumcised in verse 51. Look there. You stiff-necked people. And I don't, I don't read this as him yelling at them. He's not yelling, right? I think sometimes it's like when you read this narrative, it feels like, whoa, like that just like jar, it's jarring. It feels very jarring. I think he's pleading with them. He's like, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, friends, we're coming to a close here. But I want to draw our attention to something that's really, I think, insightful, important, and just really powerful. In verse 53, you who received the law is delivered by angels and did 
not keep it. Look in verse 35 of Acts 7. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. And then in verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Do you remember what Acts 6.15 says? Look there. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In the scriptures are mediators of God's presence. Angels in the scriptures are mediators of God's presence, of God's truth, of God's revelation. And in the same way that Moses received through the, uh, the mediation of angels, the Torah on Mount Sinai, the covenant on Mount Sinai, the revelation of God in the burning bush, Stephen is drawing on that, Luke is drawing on that, and he's trying to draw attention to the fact that Luke, who is transfigured as an angel before them, is the, now the mediator of a new covenant. He's bringing He's wanting to bring to them, restore to them, here is the true first Moses. Here is the true Moses that you say that you know and worship. I want you to see him for who he is because he's going to point to the new Moses who is Christ. Remember, he said that Moses promised or prophesied that a prophet would rise among your brothers who would be like me. It's Deuteronomy 18. And that we know is Christ. It was the first Moses who said that. And it's the second Moses in Christ who's come. And so, friends, like Moses and now Jesus, Stephen is literally entering the Egypt of their hearts. He's entering into their Egypt, and he's calling them out of slavery. He's calling them home to Jesus, their new Moses, and his church, who's the new Israel. Stephen is a minister of the new covenant, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And the veil was lifted from Stephen's face because, like Paul says, because Stephen's face, sorry, excuse me, Stephen's life and death was a beholding of the glory of the Lord, his face would shine like Moses' face. And his, and his face would shine like the face of Christ. Look at Acts 7.55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this moment, the religious leaders are enraged. They, they say it's enough. Blasphemy is clear, right? And we're told just ever so matter-of-factly that a young man named Saul was among them which is very interesting, a man that we will see in Acts chapter 8, and as you, you may know the story, this man Saul would later become the Apostle Paul, who we quoted earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. His face was veiled. His face was utterly veiled and blinded, and it wasn't until he encountered Christ and he encountered the, un, the lifting of the veil by the Holy Spirit to see Christ and to see what Christ was doing in the new covenant that he came to understand what God was doing in and through the church and in and through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was this Paul, right, who would then take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But Paul, I submit to you, saw the face of Jesus 
in Stephen's face. Because Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That should sound familiar to us. That's the very same prayer, in essence, that Jesus prayed from the cross. Right? He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. They do not understand. And so, friends, as we come to a close here, I hope that we begin to see that Stephen's life is a reflection, his face is a reflection of the person and power of Christ. And I think we can end with two meditations. One is a warning. Um, we see that the religious leaders were spiritually blinded. They exiled Moses, and in so doing, they exiled themselves from the heart of God. And I think that it's very important to understand that we as the church, we as Christians, can do the very same thing if we're not careful. Um, tradition matters. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. I like those things. Um, but they only matter insofar as they remain living oracles of God. They have to be living oracles of God. They can't be dead letter, spiritually dead things, detritus. It can't be that, right? We can do the very same thing. We can exile Jesus from this place. We can exile Jesus from our lives if we are just pursuing our selfish agendas. The second point is a call. I think Stephen's story is our story, um, Christ Church Madison's story. We here, if we know Jesus, if we have the Holy Spirit and are baptized in, in, into, the, into the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are ministers of the new covenant in Jesus. And like Stephen, we are called in and out of Egypt, out of our slavery, out of the Egypt of our own hearts, right? We're called to, to look there and find the places where we are enslaved, where we have idolatry, where we are in spiritual exile, but the heart of our church, the heart of our culture, because we know that there are religious high places in our culture, right? And even though they don't parade as such, they carry themselves with the same zeal and authority. And so I think we have, to call, we have to enter into those places and get on board with what God's doing, the fresh work he's doing in bringing renewal and restoration. But we have to begin where we are. Now, here, this moment. Um, that's where we have to begin. And I think we have to ask, just as Stephen did, for wisdom, for the grace to be good, for the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can see as God sees, think God's thoughts, see the warp and woof of the world transfigured from one degree of glory to the next. So as Stephen said, uh, Moses' face was beautiful in God's sight. Uh, Jesus' face is beautiful in God's sight. And I think we see, I hope we see, Stephen's face is beautiful in God's sight. But may we be a people whose faces shine with the beauty and the glory of God. May we be inspired to ask for the Holy Spirit to be those who keep grace, that keeps all our goings graces, to act in God's eye what in God's eye we are, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, to the features of men's faces. Amen.